Listeners, it's your escape from Plan A for the week. I'm your occasional host, Philip, and I'm here with a special guest today, Lucas. Hey, Lucas. Hey, everyone. Hey. Hey, welcome. So um, we have a, a very interesting topic today that I've been super excited to record for some time. Um, as folks know, since I'm hosting, it's, it's going to be one of our tech series topics. And today we'll be talking about uh, working for a giant Chinese uh, tech company, in this case, ByteDance, a.k.a the creators of TikTok. Um, so Lucas is an uh, employee there who's, who's willing to chat with us about this. Lucas, you're also like a longtime listener and, and fan of the pod. Good to have you on, bud. Yeah, totally. I'm a huge fan of Plan A. I, I think I actually knew a lot of uh, the original Plan A people, including you, uh, since a few years ago. And yeah. definitely have been listening since the founding. Yeah, we're all in the kind of like online Twitter spaces and stuff like that. Yeah. So um, cool. So glad to have you on. This is a, a really hot topic. People, <laughs> listeners of, of the pod know that I'm, I'm very bullish on TikTok for all sorts of reasons um, related to Asian America and outside of that too. Um, but before we get into, because your, your intro and your journey and so on, um, I wanted to just do some housekeeping. Um, you know, for anyone who's listening, you know, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify. Those are the best ways to support the pod if you like it. Um, you know, we also have a Patreon that's like five bucks um, a month, which has a lot of great benefits, like all of our previous uh, bonus episodes, uh, access to all the new ones, um, as well as our, our Patreon uh, Discord, which is very lively these days, especially with the Winter Olympics happening right now in China. Um, so really cool conversations there. I just want to highlight, we don't do this very often, but because this is going to be a free episode, I want to highlight a few um, bonus apps uh, that, are, that we had recently. Um, we had one... Um, between Teen and, and Jess called Does Asian Privilege Exist? Which is really in that context of the Harvard Affirmative Action cases going on right now. So very topical, great great d- debate there on that topic. And then uh, one that I really enjoyed um, from a couple of weeks ago is called The Good Life, which is between Chris and Jess, um, where, you know, like on these bonus pods, we try to go a bit more into like kind of, kind of personal intimate details about some things that are related to the uh, free episode topic. So that was a follow-up to the anti-work tamping pod uh, and and you know Chris and Jess talk about their own efforts to to uh, lie flat or uh, to engage in anti-work too which is very fascinating to hear uh, from other Asian Americans um, so I encourage folks to check that out if you want to subscribe um, and also we have a, a store now we have a, a store at planamag.com shop where we, we're selling these tamping uh, t-shirts which we recreated um, <laughs> from this design that was uh, popular but then like taken down in in China so that was really cool um, so check out planamag.com slash shop. Okay, that's enough housekeeping. Um, all right. So Lucas, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners and then we'll we'll talk a bit about your your journey at TikTok. Yeah, totally. Nice to meet everyone. I'm Lucas. I'm a second generation Chinese American. And um basically for like relevant to the pod, for most of my career, I've worked in big tech in America. And I wanted to try out working at a Chinese tech company. 
And especially something like, like TikTok, where um, it's like a very prominent company that's expanding internationally really quickly. And there was a need for, I think, people who were able to speak some basic Chinese, some basic Mandarin, uh, and, and also had experience work, working in the West because the company at the time wanted to internationalize very quickly. And some context is I actually can't I can't speak Chinese that well. So <laughs> maybe maybe like third grade, fourth grade level mm-hmm. uh, Mandarin. So yeah, I think, uh, and, and so a little bit more for the past year I've been at TikTok, um, like managing a software machine learning team in America, but reporting up to a Chinese manager. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, the uh, like, teammates and cross-functional work was with China, like maybe 30, 40% of the meetings were with colleagues in China, Singapore, sometimes Europe. Mm-hmm. So it's, there was a lot of times where we just had to speak Mandarin in the meetings and uh, like rely on translation or like frantically learn, like learn Chinese on the job. Wow, that's kind of that's kind of an insane, you know, like second task to do, um, especially if you're not familiar. I mean, I can't even imagine. We'll, we'll get into this, but like if you're like a non-Mandarin speaker, if there even is a path into ByteDance and what that looks like for you and so on. Um, yeah, but, totally. but we'll get there. I want to hear a bit more about kind of you know being a second gen Asian American. Like, why did you want to join a, a Chinese tech company? Like, what what was the motivation? Yeah, this is a really good question and. Um, doing this is actually very un- unconventional. I think like, one year ago when I did it, and even now, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's not a very common thing to see other like Asian Americans or Chinese Americans uh, in, in these in like like at TikTok. Mm-hmm. And part of why actually is related to Plan A and all the stuff we've been talking about on Twitter and Reddit. Like for example, living a life consistent with your values uh, is is a pretty big source of happiness and fulfillment. And, you know, like after listening to Plan A, being on Reddit and Twitter, like a lot of it's like, you know, like why, like you you could talk so much about not supporting U.S. imperialism and all this stuff. But Mm -hmm. in the end of the day, if you're working at an American, big American company um, that's like providing uh, services and products to to, to the rest of the world and internationalizing and and, and like it ends up contributing back to imperialism in a different sense. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. a part of, so that, that was like one part of it. I wanted to try something new uh like work at, at like the a chinese company and uh, like something like a, a a growing internationalizing like a quickly expanding chinese company and like have the experience and an- another side of it outside of being like the, the political the political part of this is like just for myself like uh, learning chinese going from mm-hmm. and, and it, it definitely worked i think like when i first started i was at hsk3 which is a very basic mandarin proficiency but now i, I definitely have gotten a lot better like near fluent and can uh, communicate in a business setting pretty easily now. It, what, and, what's HSK? Is that just like a standard for like Mandarin proficiency level, writing, reading, literacy? Yes, like, it's it's okay. proficiency measure, and it's like basically a thresholds on words, number of words you know, and basic grammar. Is it is it Mandarin exclusively, or is it also like applied to Cantonese and other dialects? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm actually not sure, but okay. in the context that I know, it's it's Mandarin. Okay, and cool. so so for for me at least, like to, to, the the main reasons for wanting to do this were number one, uh, like living a consistent life uh, mm. to, to my values. Number two, it's like learning Chinese. Uh, number three, it's I wanted to build a network in China, like mm-hmm. like Renmai. It's like something like create. Like if I ever wanted to move to Asia, I wanted to have contacts and people who could help me, and you know, like basically get assimilated. And yeah, I think the, these were the main the main reasons why I wanted to move. Is that a, the, the wanting to build a network in, in China, is that like a hedge because you think like 
power and you know influence is shifting eastward or is it just like a you're tired of the west and you want to like try it out you know give it give it a shot and have an opportunity to maybe move if you want to or whatever yeah yeah it's a good question i think it actually dovetails into what i wanted to mention like next anyway which is um like also around the time when i quit like like big us tech and went to tiktok Mm-hmm. Uh, this is like early, like very early 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is when Clubhouse was like very popular on fire. And some friends and I, like my, my, my pretty good friend Derek and some other guys, we founded this thing called Journey to the East, okay. which was we noticed like after the uh, making a video with Carl Jaw talking about Chinese Americans moving to China, we just had this like insane flood of emails and uh, message requests from other second generation Chinese diaspora, uh, not just in America, but like in many Western countries, mm-hmm. just saying like, hey, I'm I'm really concerned about this. Like, I feel like we're being left behind. You know, it's all this development coming out of Asia, like both like center center of mass for um, like industry technology coming out of China, a uh, culture coming out of South Korea. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of like very concerned, <laughs> very, pretty concerned like Chinese American like uh, uh, like like Asian Americans in general, just saying, hey, I want to learn more about this. Like, tell me more about moving to Asia because I have this thought that we're getting left behind and. But moving to Asia is such a huge thing. Like, there's just so many aspects of it. Like, you don't know anyone there. You don't speak a language. How are you going to get a job? Yeah. Um, like social isolation, isolation, um, being like a sense of belonging. So there's just all this stuff. So basically, journey, journey to the East was a community where we interviewed people who've made the move already to, mm-hmm. to basically give provide services for other Asian Americans who want to make the move. Is it like so, a is it like a podcast or a YouTube channel or Discord? What what is it? Uh, yeah, it, it was like a mix. It was like, at first it was a clubhouse weekly room, which expanded into a discord community. And we ended up like doing periodic interviews and writing up some, some like guides. So uh, it's, 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 it's kind of discontinued as of a few, a few months ago because like both of the founders were kind of busy, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we're thinking about picking it up again. So if you're interested, that's yeah, well, you know, we should link all that stuff in the show yeah. notes, right? So folks can check it out. Uh, the Carl's, uh, uh, Video, especially since he's a friend of the pod, um, yeah. and, and I, I gotta I gotta give a shout out to you, um, uh, Lucas, because the the clubhouse thing, like the Asian clubhouse thing, you told me about that like over a year ago, I think at this point, um, when we did a, a live stream, I was talking about how there's this, like, all this crazy stuff happening with like diaspora uh, Chinese and Asian American people talking to you know folks um, you know who are who are from I think most, maybe was it mostly Taiwan? There's like away from Taiwan, um, yeah. you know. Um, about politics and and violence and against Asian Americans in, in the states and stuff like that. So it's a very interesting time, and it sounds like it kind of like it, it waned after some time. Um, but yeah. these are all kind of adjacent interests. And I think you also tipped me on to not not JTE, but um, uh, maybe this this group called Dias- Diaspora oh, Migration. Yeah. yeah, this like Discord group that I joined just to see what people were saying. Um, very, very interesting. There's, there is a, you're right. There is a whole kind of, not a subculture, but like a group of people, groups of people forming communities around this idea of moving <laughs> for various reasons. Right. Yeah. Super interesting. I think the diaspora migration exchange. So there's like, so around the time, there's so many of these communities that sprouted up and they all were created like near the same time of each other. Like for example, yeah. journey to the East diaspora migration exchange There's one called SAR, um, yeah. led by a guy named Brienne. And mm-hmm. it's like, basically all are promoting, uh, like Asian Americans and Chinese Americans moving back to Asia, right. but like the the, the motivation is a little bit different for each one. Like for some, it's anti imperialism. For others, it's just like for practical pers- purposes for our, our future kids. Yeah, and, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we definitely know people in the Plan A sphere who who have those thoughts um, on 
on mostly on the practical end of the spectrum. And I think a lot of it is like personal mental health, uh, you know, not wanting to be afraid of being around in a place where your seniors are being attacked and stuff like that. Um, you know, maybe less on the in imperialism side, but in that one discord, I was like kind of lurking in a lot of people just went like full, full tanky in there too. Yeah, I remember that, oh, that it's discord. A, it's literally if you join to ask, are you a communist? It's like, yeah. a, like, a, like, a, like some girl in middle school. <laughs> yeah. A little, little intense, but interesting to see those, you know, this is not, this is not a small thing. It's like a weak, you know, it's what they call in futurism, a weak signal, meaning it's like a mini trend that's going to lead to something potentially a lot bigger yeah. um, as a result of outside forces. So anyway, that that's very interesting. I'm sure we'll, we'll you know, touch on that some more, um, but that, that's kind of your path towards wanting to leave, right? So you, you start getting involved in all this stuff. Um, yeah. And to give a little more context, basically... When I announced this, because I told a lot of my friends that, that I was quitting a major American tech company and moving mm -hmm. to TikTok, which is you know a Chinese uh, multinational company, which everyone knows about by now, like owned by ByteDance, a lot of my friends were like kind of thinking I'm crazy. Like, the, why, why would you go to a Chinese company? You know, it's, isn't the work-life balance much worse? Like late-night mm -hmm. meetings, blah blah blah. But mm -hmm. deep down, I, I wanted to to try it out, and knowing everything we've talked about, all the motivations, uh, I thought now would be the right time. And it's kind of unconventional, but well, it's a, to, it's a yeah. motivator that if you're like a white techie, you wouldn't have versus if you're an Asian American techie. Yeah, right? exactly. It's like exactly. completely divided on, on racial lines and, and versus other groups too, you know, who just don't understand like, why would you want to work for uh, TikTok? The, the thing is though with ByteDance is that like of all the reasons you gave, the, another reason I thought of that people would want to go move and work, you know, move to work for TikTok, even if, if you know, on American soil, is that it's just another fang now in some sense, in the sense that like, it's such a huge company that it, you know, you can have the same motivation of like wanting to just work for a big tech company and they would fit the bill, right? Like it's a ticketact.com is a, a, a bigger site. It has more traffic than Google, right? Yep. Like we've talked about this before on the pod. It, this is, this, this happened, you know, not recently. It happened over the summer. Right. Um, and they're still accelerating in growth, whereas their competitor Facebook is declining. So, you know, it's just, you can be motivated just by wanting to work at a big, huge influential tech company and would want to go there. So there's that too, on top of everything you said, I think. Yeah, totally. And this is a perfect transition into what I wanted to bring up next, which is the some context on the company itself. Because mm -hmm. uh, I think like ByteDance, TikTok, is kind of in an exceptional position right now. So first, some initial context. You know, the company is not small. It's 100,000 plus employees spread throughout the world. Mm -hmm. um, and it's actually kind of crazy where this is like the first time. I, I don't, I'm not sure like if it's the first time in history, but... It's the first time where like a Chinese, you know, consumer internet product is doing so well in the West, mm -hmm. and it's this unique situation where like because before we've seen Chinese internet, internet companies do well within China, where the workforce is totally Chinese. It's just like a domestic Chinese company. This is a kind of a unique case where a lot of the employees are non-Chinese. Like you have a lot of Americans, Indians, Singaporeans, uh, ethnic Chinese Singaporeans, um, Chinese international students. You have um, you know. In America, there's a it's a very wide spectrum. You have white people, um, second generation Asian Americans, and there's a lot of them. And we're working under the context of a, like a Chinese leadership and the headquarters is in China. So it's it's very like I just I've actually spent some time thinking about are there any other companies like this, and I couldn't really think of any. So it's yeah, kind of unique. And the sheer size too, it's a hundred thousand people, right? Yeah. Um, at ByteDance, just for some context here, right? Google is now 140k i don't know if that includes um tbcs like temps and vendors and contractors but google's yeah. 140 and facebook is about um 45k 
right? Just for context. Yeah. So, um, and so, and those are those are international numbers too. So that'll include everybody at like Facebook and Google, like Asian offices and whatnot as well, right? So. Um, yeah. Exactly. So. Um, it's this is a kind of an interesting. If you wanted to make a comparison point to one of the American Fang companies, it's kind of like an inverse where it's very international, it's expanding globally, but like, and it also has a very diverse workforce. That's, but the, but the main difference is it's instead of like being a like a, a, a Western culturally led company, it's it's more Chinese. Yeah, I remember at Google they had a there was a, a period of time when there was a lot of power consolidation where yeah. they were actually limiting the growth and even reducing and down like closing down. Um, offices, even stateside outside of Mountain View, right? Wow. So like a, a big part of like careerism at Google was like, if you wanted to pers- like really, you know, proceed in your career and grow your career, you had to be in Mountain View in order to have influence, right? Mm. Um, and things are very different right now, obviously with the, you know, work from home, COVID, all that stuff. Um, it's very different, but you know, that's, a, I think a different approach and mindset versus like what you're saying is the inverse at ByteDance. Yeah. Um, yeah, so let, let's talk about that, right? So I think the sheer scale of the company has a lot of influence on how a Chinese tech company behaves differently from an American large tech company. Um, and, and one thing that we talked about when we were preparing for this was just like meetings and how meetings are different, right? <laughs> can, you, can you just give us a little bit of flavor on, on that? Yeah, so the meetings are like totally different. And basically, like, like this is something you notice immediately within the first two weeks of joining. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one is there's very few one-on-one meetings. And mm-hmm. one-on-ones are very common in most Western companies. Basically, you oh, want yeah. to get to know someone, talk to them, talk about a project. There's a bunch of reasons why, reasons why someone would want to do this. But in Chinese companies, one-on-ones are extremely rare. Periodic, weekly one-on-ones are almost unheard of. Mm-hmm. And which, like, which is just like a mainstay, you know, uh, at American tech companies, right? Yeah, yeah, it's like a mainstay, and like for for most of these like big differences between Chinese and U.S. tech, and I, I'm kind of like using ByteDance TikTok to to re- represent U.S. all like all of Chinese tech, so it may not be totally accurate, but sure, um, I feel like a lot of it could be either due to like cultural reasons, uh, material conditions, things like population size, number of STEM grads, mm-hmm. labor cost. Mm-hmm. Or like the stage of development of like the industry in China versus America. So like for for this, basically, we notice first of all like there's no one on ones, um, and very very few periodic one on ones. And most of the meetings were like like ninety minute meetings with fifty plus people. Mm-hmm. So for Chinese companies, the standard mode of operating for communication is to just get everyone together in a room, and we just most people don't really talk it's like several key members uh doing most of the communication so so like play this out for me right you know you guys would use something like i don't know you zoom maybe some other alternative but like some video conferencing software right yeah. um and then like there's a there's like a hundred plus people on there or just a large number of people on there right and most people are there like on mute just listening and then there's like two or three people talking, giving, giving instructions, giving information, doing a presentation, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I, like I, a lecture I, hall almost. Like a quick overview of basic meeting. So it's like a hundred plus person meeting spread across usually three time zones. And it's probably like half like Ch- mainland Chinese coworkers. And there's mm-hmm. a good amount of like American ones and Singaporean ones. And uh, we usually use English for these more international meetings, but in the like the higher up leadership meetings, it's in Mandarin, and I can go more into that later. Okay. So for these like large meetings that are like execution based, it's almost always in English, and we use an internal tool called Lark, 
Hmm. Uh, in Chinese, it's Feishu, basically internally built tool, which is now like uh, very popular in, for, for most Chinese companies to use this, but it supports real-time translation. So, oh, cool, we, yeah. so a speaker would be speaking in English, but there's real-time subtitling in any any language you want. Is it good? Uh, no, it's it's very bad. Okay. <laughs> so this is like 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 a lot of friction for communication. Like holy crap, it was pretty pretty tough. Like yeah. So so uh, you have like hundred people sitting in a in a meeting that's spread across three time zones, and there's all these different types of people, and there's two or three people talking usually with a document, like mm-hmm. they're going over a doc that they're presenting while they're talking with translations. Uh, so what I first noticed, the first thing I noticed is this this type of meeting was very common. Mm-hmm. I don't really have a word for it. Like, it's not really a stand-up either. It's but it, these like big gatherings where there are a lot of people uh, basically broadcast communication. It's a lot more common. I, I didn't see a lot of one-on-one. I, you know, one-on-ones are rare. Also, small group like you know so- Socratic discussions were also rare. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot more of this like these larger meetings where two or three people just broadcast information. Yeah, when I think about these broadcast style meetings in like Western fan companies and even at startups too, it's often like a company all hands town hall kind of thing yeah. where like often some someone fucked up and now someone has to apologize, right? Like the COS yeah. did. Or, or it's like a company update, which might be regular as well. Yeah. Um, so they, they can be regular and occurring, but it's always like, you know, it's not for execution, right? It's, it's like yeah. all, never for execution. Exactly. It's always for, for maybe strategy. And certainly for announcements uh, and like updates and stuff, but it's never for like execution on a project. Yep, exactly. And for this, it is for execution, which is kind of the kind of a major difference. And um, so, so, can we dig into that a little bit more? Just because, like, I'm I'm personally curious as a, a tech person myself, right? So, like, you know, would it be like two or three people, maybe product managers, engineering leads, directors, being like, okay, we're building this feature now, you know, folks, like addressing 80 to 100 people who are engineers and, and designers and, you know, QA folks and whatever else. And then they they give the broad kind of like maybe architecture of what the feature is and so on. And then they start to assign teams to it. And then the team leads would then, you know, take over from their offline and, and follow up with the build and stuff. Like, is that the kind of thing that happens in these execution meetings? Like, how does that, how does it actually play out? Yeah, a, a lot of it is that. It's basically conveying like updates to the, you know, the goals of the company, what we're trying to do like specs for this new thing we want to do and like, like uh, kind of like assigning roles or having like deadlines for everyone involved. And um, something I want to bring up is like, w- why is it like this? Mm-hmm. Um, like I mentioned before, like it could be because of material conditions or culture or like just sta- stage of development. And I think like, I've actually thought about this a, a lot because it was such a big difference. And I, especially for the first few months, I was pretty upset about this and thinking this is just so inefficient. And I wanted to, push for changing it into like more of the Western way of doing things mm. that I was used to. And this, I, I wasn't alone. A lot of my coworkers who were also had similar backgrounds as me, who just joined a Chinese company for the first time. Like a lot of second gen Asian American tech workers. Yeah. Like a, a second gen Asian American tech workers or even some non-Chinese ones or, or even like Chinese grad students who just couldn't deal with this because this sure. is their first, first Chinese company too. <laughs> yeah. 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 And basically we try to like push for one-on-ones and it totally failed. And um, it was really interesting because I actually learned the Chinese companies operate in this way because they have to. We, the, the org structure was a lot more flat. Um, and the way roles were assigned were people weren't area owners. Basically, mm-hmm. um, PMs and engineers like were kind of treated as resources. Like Nobody owned a certain area. Mm-hmm. Like As new work 
and demand came up, people were just assigned to new things. Uh, right. So it could be a new project you'd never touched before. You get some specs requirements, like build this feature, and then you got to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. So it, it was a lot more like that. And, and because like, you know, the org structure is really flat. No one was an area owner, and there's just so many coworkers. Mm-hmm. Because it was just like, 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 uh, like the, 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 the size of the company was big, but even more so than the size of the company, people weren't like, it wasn't very like isolated and quarantined. People were meeting with a lot of different, uh, like other different people. Yeah. I wonder or, if, um, if people who are used to, you know, Western tech companies like myself would, would kind of challenge that and say like, for example, you know, I just mentioned that Google actually has 40% more employees than TikTok, yeah. but they definitely don't engage in that style of management. So, you know, and, and execution. So like, you know, I think to your point, there's a whole bunch of factors here, right? And I think one thing that you said that maybe it's like, it feels like it's a little bit less mature because it's a, a newer, like it's a newer, it's not a new industry, but it's like, like they grew so quickly that they may not have adopted best practices, you want to call it that, that have been established by, by um, you know, other folks in other countries and whatnot. Um, but it sounds like there's more than one factor. Right? It's not just that there's a lot of people... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, another thing, I, a glaring thing I missed was like the, the top-down nature of the company, um, mm-hmm. and that leads to like that's a lot more conducive to these types of meetings where if yeah. it's not very discussion-based or bottom-up, and all ideas are from top-down. You want broadcast style, like that's right. the most effective. So, right. a bunch of reasons, like maybe culture, cultural reasons. I don't know if like there's like Confucian influence on uh, the, for for this way of doing things, or uh, maybe like the industry is not as mature. I feel like definitely like a lot of the stand-ups and meetings felt like an assembly line. Like it felt like assembly line management, which is kind of weird, but uh, it, it could be just because like uh, Chinese companies are doing well, but they're still playing catch up in like processes and company organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you, you kind of talked about that like style of uh, like meeting and meetings and management as like something that they have to do. Um, but I'm also curious about this thing you mentioned to me too about something that they they kind of can do because of their sheer scale. And just to jump ahead in our our outline a little bit um, to like the the product strategy stuff and execution stuff, because I think it's related to this topic. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that they like just rely on sheer manpower to solve problems. Yeah, that was because huge. because of the differences in wage, right? You're not paying like the the salaries. These are not the same kind of fang salaries you see at like a Google or Facebook, right? So you're have a lot more people at lower lower wage brackets who can do all sorts of grant work, and they, you know, the the nature of the work changes because of that. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, told, uh, this is a, a huge thing. A big source of the difference was labor cost. Basically, labor cost in China is like much cheaper than America. I think six or seven times cheaper. And the, this drove so many changes in how this, how like these two types of companies operated. Mm-hmm. So for for one, engineers don't write unit tests. Um, I'm not sure how many <laughs> listeners know what that means, but basically, software engineers uh, basically have to test their what they do themselves. Like if I'm building a product or a service, I need to test it with my own code to make sure it's working as expected in, a, in an automated way. Right? The idea is that you write yes. code for the feature, and then you write code to test the feature, yep. and then the code that tests the feature is run repeatedly all the time. Anytime you make a change, we double check with it. And it saves a lot of you know uh, pain in the future because it's automated, right? Exactly. So the idea is because labor cost is so much cheaper, especially between the engineers, STEM, STEM majors in China, which is like mm-hmm. more coveted, and just normal workers. They actually rely on QA, quality assurance, like a huge group of people that all they do is manually 
by hand test what the engineers do. Right. So this is like, for me, this was absolutely insane. Basically, you have like engineers in America, you know, mainland China, Singapore, producing lots of code. And you have like these big groups of people testing the code manually by hand. And the engineers are not supposed to write code themselves because for, for labor costs, you want your engineers to be focusing on, I guess, what, what matters more, which is like producing the products and features. And they're yeah. able to like cut down on costs by actually relying on hand, like manual labor. Um, yeah. And, and I, I think, um, you know, on top of, so this is like the most staggering thing you told me when we talked about this before, that there's no unit <laughs> test. I'm like, holy shit, right? I understand, like, I've been at startups yeah, it, where yeah. we don't have unit tests because it's like early days and you put them in later, but you eventually put them in, right? If you're going to follow best practices. Yeah. Yeah. And the things, it works. Like, I don't, TikTok doesn't crash that much. I think it crashes less than like the places I've worked at in the, in the past, which, you know, very standard, standard way of operating things with engineering. It's kind of hilarious. Yeah, that that's yeah. <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to point it out because because you you mentioned other differences too, right? Like you know, there's no you know, there's a whole bunch of process differences, like no weekly bug reviews, like there's very few document the doc there's very little documentation, which actually is true at Western companies too. Um, <laughs> you know, there's no upward perform you know performance feedback, um, and these are all things that like um, someone who has only done tech in the West would maybe look at, especially if you you just have a general bias against China to say like. Oh, this is these people don't know what the fuck they're doing, and they're going to produce bad software and bad products, right? But the reality is that that's to your point earlier. That's not the case, right? The like case. the app, it, the app works. The app scales tremendously, right? The, the, doing really the, fucking well. It's doing extremely well. It's the most popular <laughs> website on the internet, right? It scales like crazy. It's video content. It's not light shit, right? Maybe it's not the most efficient, you know, behind the scenes and whatnot. But people have it installed. Like they're not. No one's like had a backlash because like the data consumption is too high or, you know, any of these optimization related issues. And generally you don't hear about crazy bugs in TikTok. And yes, maybe there is a kind of a brute force-ish approach to doing this, right? And it's not like there's no QA people in American tech companies either. You know, they have large teams of QA folks. Often they offshore it to India and stuff too, right? China and whatnot as well. Um, But the approach is different here and they still produce working software end of the day. Yeah, exactly. It, it, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around how this whole machine is like working so well. <laughs> yeah, because like being on the inside and looking at how things are done, it's just like I, you wouldn't think this this would work, but it's working. It's working really well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and, and let's get let's get into like kind of last part about this process thing, right? So you 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 kind of weighed the pros and cons of like all these kind of like process differences and stuff. You know, um, can you talk a bit about that? Oh, right. Uh, yeah. So something else I wanted to bring up, but forgot, like, this is kind of like related to QA, but more on the product and strategy side, mm-hmm. where I, something else, like, kind of a glaring difference I noticed, and this is, I talk about, about this a lot with my my product manager friend. She also joined, uh, this is also her first Chinese company. Mm-hmm. Basically, we noticed um, there's a big reliance on operations teams. And in general, these Chinese, Chinese like uh, TikTok and ByteDance and all of the subsidiaries are a lot more proactive. Uh, reliant on manpower, like operations, and a lot less like, you know, Western product market fit th- thinking, relying on data, like like uh, a little bit less data driven. And how Western companies are more passive; they don't really. I, f- I feel like, from my experience at least, they're not as hands on with so, customer so, clients. So spell that out for folks who don't understand what that means. Like, what what would the operations teams do? Like these massive teams of operations people do to make like a new feature or the application successful? Like what do they do in the market? So the operations teams first are like very hands-on. They directly talk to big clients. If like a client wants to do like a, like, like do it like a run an advertisement for you, uh, like, like w- w- with your company, or mm-hmm. they talk to big groups of users. They do like run summary, like 
they, they run uh, user research, they mm-hmm. uh, start campaigns, they lead marketing campaigns, they deploy company money to, to mm-hmm. like run like a Super Bowl ad. Uh, so it's like a, a big group of people who are very like try to like help the company grow and get clients and but it's a lot more manual. Um, so it's the way the, the thing we noticed is like the role of operations is much bigger in Chinese companies. Like every Chinese company has a, a sizable ops team. And this is not just from TikTok, ByteDance, but from talking to other friends at like BAT, which is China's versions of a version of Fang, mm-hmm. um, like Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent. Mm-hmm. And they have large ops teams, which, um, it, and this is, goes back to labor costs, like, like, like large ops teams that manually talk to users, clients, deploy money, start campaigns. So, so yeah. when you say ops, you actually mean like sales and marketing? Yeah, I think the, 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 there's some overlap in the role. Okay, yeah, because yeah. I think in, in American tech, like ops is completely separate from sales and marketing, and they're smaller, and they handle a lot of like the, the kind of manual like stuff that needs to get done that hasn't been automated yet, um, and a whole bunch of other tasks that are kind of miscellaneous in getting a software product like in a market and, and executing. But you're actually describing more like sales, like there's a lot of like hands-on sales work and a hands-on like deployment of of uh, um, uh, of like programs and capital and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I think like when I say ops, it's kind of broad. It's just like including yeah. a lot of sales and marketing responsibility. But a lot but, of the non-tech roles, in some sense, if you want to generalize a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's a better way to put it. Basically, most non-tech, non-automated, like non-data-driven type of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I think it's um, it is a big difference. But I think end of the day, you have to look back at the results, right? Working. Um, it, it's working. I mean, is it the most efficient? Like, I don't know what the situation with like profitability and all those questions that will eventually become an issue for ByteDance's like sustained dominance, right? Yeah. But it's working now. Like the app is big. It's growing further. The competitors are being pushed back. Um, they don't have a response just yet. You know, the, one of the most interesting things I saw recently about. You know how like Facebook's um, share price crashed and like, you know, people were like kind of figuring out what's going to happen next with the company and stuff. One yeah. interesting thing I, I read in an article about about the dilemma Facebook is in is that like, you know, with Instagram, you know, they have a, a way to, you know, with a big audience, capture some of the similar interests to uh, TikTok, like as a video platform. But yeah. they have this dilemma where, um, you know, it, it's like it, it hurts them to put video content out. Like it, there's less revenue per user, right? And so they can't yeah. get into video more because if they get into video more, they'll make less money. And also because they're now like a scrutinized publicly traded company, you know, they have to keep revenues up um, and keep profits propped up. So they're kind of in this bind where like it's actually difficult for them, at least with the Instagram platform to challenge um, and specifically the Reels feature, which is like their their TikTok, right, um, for Instagram to challenge um uh, by dance. Whereas with with Snapchat, they like when they copied stories, like they stole all of Snapchat's thunder, really, right? Snapchat's are doing decently well, I think, but like that was actually a successful copycat from uh, from Facebook for once, right? Whereas all their other copycats against Twitter, against TikTok, and others um, have not done so well. So it's it's been tough for them, um, and TikTok's still doing well despite you know very different operating circumstances and and philosophies and whatnot. Yeah, it's it a really interesting example. Actually, like, was part of the the Instagram stories <laughs> copycat effort <laughs> okay. around, the, around the time when it happened, and it definitely uh, was was really successful. Um, it's it's hard to say why. Like, I, I guess you make a good point. They're kind of in a bind, 
right? It's hard for for Instagram to go after long term interests when they're so accountable for these like mm-hmm. you know these these earnings calls. So. Yeah. And I don't yeah. think that's the only thing binding, you know, like tying their hands, like, you know, the whole move into metaverse and all that stuff, like that's definitely stuff that shareholders are upset about. That's part of why they, they are like maybe not so happy and the share prices dropped and so on. Um, but it is a restriction, right. That, that makes it difficult for them uh, because of their business models and whatnot too. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, but okay. Let's, let's, uh, so that's good. And I think we'll, we'll touch on more of execution, work culture and stuff as we, as we, Keep going, but why don't we talk a bit about? I think the thing that maybe a lot of people are interested uh, as listeners here um, of Escape from Plan A, which is like the kind of ratio aspects of you know working working for uh, Chinese tech companies, right? Like, um, especially from your perspective as a second generation American who's been in tech before and, and moving out there, you know. So why don't we talk a bit about that? Great, favorite topic, <laughs> the racial stuff. Can't wait to get into this. Yeah. Um, so first. Uh, I just want to caveat this with this is like my personal observation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I'm not like very confident in if this is can generalize to to like most Chinese tech companies sure. or even most people's experiences, but this is something I, I kind of noticed. So social hierarchy; these social hierarchies usually exist in you know organizations, whether or not someone wants to admit it. Um, in a Chinese in like TikTok ByteDance, I actually felt. Like on the org chart, the people at the very top were usually Western educated or people who've worked in the West, Chinese people. So like they're they're like ethnic Chinese people who have done some education or work at uh, like a a stint in the West, usually a few years or maybe seven or eight years. Um, Would they they typically be, they're not like second generous, right? Like you, they may be more like... 1.5 1.5 oh. or first gens who went over for education and came back like what what's the oh, nature oh, this is the really interesting part i was about to get into i think second gens have high social high social mobility in this hierarchy which is very interesting mm-hmm. so for, i just want to give a quick outline of the hierarchy first i think like at the very top you have like like ethnic chinese with some western background uh, it, like in the middle you have more of like purely domestic chinese who maybe have really strong stem backgrounds within china mm-hmm. kind of the second tier and at the very bottom Interestingly enough, it's like the international. It's basically uh, like Americans, uh, Singaporeans, Europeans, uh, Chinese international students who fail to assimilate, um, uh, like second generation Chinese who don't who also fail to assimilate. And why I, why I like I said before, I think second generation Chinese people actually have high social mobility is because I've seen ABCs. ABC for the audience means second generation Chinese diaspora. Specifically, America, like in America, American-born um, Chinese, yeah, American-born Chinese, right? They, I've I've seen some at the, like you know doing very high up in the org chart, which means, and I've talked to some of these people. Basically, it's not like a, a rigid hierarchy. It's just like uh, at the highest leadership levels, they do value being able to speak Mandarin, um, having the situ- situational awareness, and 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 uh, like outside of just Chinese ability, there's this concept of Chinese ness, like. Like it, like uh, these people who can who can like uh, the working style or communication or maybe just like pleasing in some way to like like their coworkers in China. So I, I, what I, what I want to say is basically it's not rigid. It's like I, I've seen second generation Asians at the very highest levels. It's like and above I, director, like VPs, SVPs, like that level. Yeah, there, there are some. Yeah. So so the the the. For 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 ABCs, I see them at the like lowest levels and the highest levels. Basically, I just want to mm-hmm. say it's like there's high social mobility. 
Yeah, and I think the other interesting thing too is just like who who is on the bottom, right? Like the fact that Westerners are on the bottom. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a Chinese tech company, so that's not maybe that not, that's not surprising, but it's just in contrast to what we're used to in tech, right? It's uh, it, it's a bit of a um, you know, the inverse in that sense, right? Like they're they're doing when you say bottom, you also mean like you know entry level yes. roles, new software engineers, new ops people. Although I'm sure Westerners are less likely to be in a sales role. Uh, well, unless they're you know selling to you know, Western, Western audiences and Western, uh, uh, customers, right. They would be there for sure. Um, yeah. but they're, they're less likely to make it up into a SVP VP director role. Yeah. And for, and the company is conscious about diversity. For example, we've hired several really high profile, like non-Chinese, like white or Indian, like top leaders. And, mm-hmm. uh, some of them retained, but I think a good amount have, have left probably mm-hmm. because of like fr- friction with kind of assimilating into this, like, uh, this Chinese working environment. Um, mm-hmm. So, for example, they've hired like so, so, like several directors of engineering who are like white, mm-hmm. or they hired a guy named Kevin Mayer to be the CEO of TikTok. I think a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. and this was a former Disney Disney executive, and he lasted like three months. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, I think the company actually actively tries to promote more diversity within the highest levels. It's just kind of hard, and I think it also has to do with like what I mentioned before: the three reasons, like culture. Where Chinese communication style and working style, style is higher context. Um, mm-hmm. There's a pretty good book called Beyond Culture that talks about this. Like, but different societies have like different levels of like, uh, for example, Japanese and Ch- Chinese society are just, there's just more rules mm-hmm. to be uh, being able to interact well. And I definitely see that working at a Chinese company. There's just more rules to follow. Is this this uh, the high context, low context thing we've talked about on the pod before? Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. that. Yeah. So I'd, I'd say Chinese working environments much higher context and. And despite the effort to try to make it more diverse, it's just hard. And so, is that why you think second-gen Asian Americans, specifically second-gen Chinese, um, you know, Americans, have an ability to move up because they have some exposure to high-context interactions? Yes, because of their upbringing, because of you know their peers, their family, and so on. Like that's part of it. Yeah, exactly. So it's like less racist, like less like strictly racist based on your race, but much higher context. Right, which, which ends up having a similar effect, but I think second generation Asians have uh, the social mobility if they what's if they want to learn it. What's a what's a what's a concrete example of that? Like, was there an example where you did something differently at ByteDance than someone who is not a second gen ABC like yourself that like you did a good result at yeah, work? Yeah, I I could just compare myself to another second generation ABC because that th- there was a case of that where okay, like my Chinese was like freaking like. You know, like it got better. It got a lot better in the past few months, but it started mm-hmm. off atrocious. And but but the thing about me, I was willing to speak it, mm-hmm. and I think they really liked that. They being the like people in China, like uh, like either peers, mm-hmm. uh, um, or like like the, the, like leadership. Like they saw you struggling because you're you know you, it's not your your first language. Yeah, yeah and they really they're, like they're like hey they they'll like work through it. They they respected it and so on. Yeah, so so like, but going back to meetings, the, the, usually the meetings when they were like a lot more dominated by mainland Chinese, like the the, the more senior leadership meetings, mm-hmm. the meetings would be in Mandarin, mm-hmm. and they'd offer to speak in English. But I think like for me, I wanted to try speaking Chinese, and I think I saw a difference where some of my friends who were also ABCs but not willing to speak Chinese, uh, they kind of mm-hmm. hit like a wall. It, it, it's I mean I think no one's deliberately trying to like, I like. Um, leave others out because of language ability but yeah it's definitely it's just like this likableness and fitting in i think like because i was willing to speak 
speak it and um like the, despite being not not a very good <laughs> chinese speaker mm-hmm. it, people like i think the like my peers like that and uh it definitely helped a lot so and so how does it help that right like how did it help you versus your buddy who also abc but did not you know try to speak mandarin even though they may have known a little bit were you just like invited to more decision making efforts like did you get more you know, exposure to certain things and more influence. Did, did it help with promotion somehow? Like, what do you? How did it actually concretely help? You? Right, right. So uh, I think everything you said was true. Like being involved in more meetings, uh, having more decision-making power, likability matters. I mean, even in a Western company, being likable matters, especially yeah. if you're at a leadership level. Mm-hmm. Being liked actually is a big part. And if, if, when you're so many of your coworkers are like like ethnic Chinese of some sort, like whether they're in the mainland or Singapore, uh, being willing to speak uh, and this is also this thing called um zhuang bi which is if you have a asian looking face and they assume you're chinese and you're speaking english a lot of the times it, it's this is a very negative thing like the, the your your the people on, on the other side will think wow look at this like this um this chinese person who thinks he's better than us now because now he went to, he he studied in america or something what does that, that term mean it's basically like i'm, I'm just like showing off and like, okay. I'm not. I'm not that great, but I'm showing off to you. I'm like trying okay. to flaunt, flaunt something I have, and uh, this is is very very common. And and a lot of I, what I noticed was like a lot of my a lot of friends who are actually Chinese. They're like first gen Chinese who came to America for grad, an undergrad specifically. Mm-hmm. A lot of words are not comfortable speaking in Mandarin themselves, so they would switch to English. And this is mm. kind of bad. Like the, the the their peers in China would think these guys are trying to show off. Right. And this is like reflects very strongly in performance review. Like people don't like this. Right. So what I want to say is like as a second gen Chinese who's trying to speak Chinese, um, and kind of like you know being a little shameless about it, <laughs> yeah, and putting myself out there. People really like that. Like they really really like that. And so, so that's that's a that's not just a high context low context thing. That's just you know willingness. And it kind of is, but like willingness to speak Mandarin, and it's related to your language skill too. I'm also going to guess that if you had a well, here, here's a here's a comparison, right? Let's say there's you know this version of you that speaks like kind of poor Mandarin, but you're willing to try, right? Like what you said you went through. Yes. And then there's this version of you where you just speak good Mandarin and you don't need to try, you just speak good Mandarin. Which one would get more respect and more, you know, more benefits? Like would it be the person who who sucks but tries or the person who's just like a fluent speaker? The, the person who sucks or tries would definitely be more, like do, do better. And... um. I'm kind of meandering from originally what I wanted to say, which is uh, like basically th- there's high social mobility for second generation Asians if they if they want to take it. And the exact comparison point was another ABC person who was uh, like basically th- this person wasn't as willing to assimilate and uh, speak Chinese. And I mean, and wh- why should they? This was like definitely not part of the job description. I think the, the job That's description right. for not for like all the international hires is English first or uh, right. uh, like English only. But I'm right. just saying that from my experience, it, it mattered. It definitely mattered. And it came as came off as pretentious if you had a Chinese face, Chinese name, but you're just, just speaking English, even mm-hmm. if you can't speak Chinese. Yeah, that's very interesting. Like, let's take a little uh, detour. I just want to get into the language thing a little bit because it's very interesting to me. You said that people would offer to speak Man- sorry, English in like meetings if there were English speakers in the meeting, right? But if yeah. it was clear that everyone was Mandarin speaking and fluent in Mandarin, speak, uh, Mandarin, they would just speak Mandarin in the meeting. So how does that come up? Like at the beginning of the meeting, do they just kind of like look around at who's on the video conference and say like, hey, we're going to do this in English if that's, if that's okay with you or, or 
how does that work? Yeah, it's it's run differently within different organizations, but generally there's a similar rule where if every if everyone could speak like semi-fluent Chinese at least, it's just in Chinese. Okay. If there's like one person or two people who completely can't speak Chinese, uh, depending on the importance and urgency of the topic, they will either go in English or Chinese. Like, uh, like for example, there's like one person who uh, I, I, I had like a coworker who's Korean, mm-hmm. and people thought he was Chinese, but yeah, <laughs> but he he couldn't speak Chinese. And for most of the meetings, we just switched to English because of this one person. But, okay, so how does that play out, right? Because this is the thing I'm thinking about: is if a lot of people are joining, they may be actually ethnically Chinese, but they don't speak Chinese well. Yeah. How do they know? Like, do you like put something in your profile? Do you like put your hand up and say? It sounds really intimidating to do that, right? How does it, that it actually is. come it's up? Extremely, it's extremely intimidating. So for me, I'm like my personality is more like shameless, extroverted. So I'll just like announce at the start of the meeting. By the way, my, my Chinese is third grade level, and that helped <laughs> okay. a lot because then if you oh okay. you know you could why don't you practice Chinese in this meeting if everyone else is Chinese and or yeah. if it's like oh, you know very international like okay don't worry we can speak English speak English this meeting right uh, for a lot of peers that I've talked to about this because we this is a common topic with. Like my other like ABC friends or non-Chinese friends or non-Asian friends at TikTok. It's just basically a lot of people aren't comfortable saying that. So it's just like very yeah. like, oh, they like have to like be very shy about it. Like they raise their hand. Oh, you know, can we please switch to English? Okay. And I'm yeah. sure, but I'm sure there's meetings where no one said anything and then they conduct the meeting in Mandarin and then a bunch of people like got nothing out of it because they don't speak Mandarin well enough. They couldn't follow or they speak none. Yeah. And they didn't yeah. say anything. I'm um, sure that happens. Right? <laughs> I will add in general, communication was just very unaffected. <laughs> like, okay. It's just like a lot, just so many wasted meetings. Like just no one knows what anyone's talking about. Um, I, like I, another thing I'll add is like for white people or Indian people who are like visibly non-Chinese, it is easier. It's just like you see their face in the meeting and immediately it just switches to English. Yeah. For second generation Asians or like non-Chinese Asians, it's kind of harder. Totally. Yeah. 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 This, this, uh, I, I can relate to this a little bit, even though I've never worked at a Chinese led, um, tech company. Um, my, my, I had a job at, um, uh, uh, American tech company, but in Quebec, like yeah. French Canada in Montreal, yeah. Montreal is a bilingual city, but you know, a lot of people speak French there. Yeah. And of course, like the, the company is American, so they speak English primarily. Um, and, uh, but day to day, like if you're just in the office, especially cause it was a smaller office at the time, People would just like speak to French if they are with another Francophone because that's where they're comfortable in, you know, totally understandable, right? Yeah. Um, but if you're an English speaker and you like walked up to them, like if I walked up to, you know, my coworkers who are French, they would just immediately like see you coming and switch to English, huh. right? Um, in a way that's like slightly deferential, but mostly just to be inclusive. Interesting. Um, which I appreciate it, but also it helped me understand why like Quebecers are so fucking pissed off at Anglo's like, <laughs> like myself, um, yeah. because they, you know, they, they are in a country that is still English dominated despite, you know, declaring itself as that bilingual. Um, but this, this thing would naturally, you know, it would go up, go that way. It would just naturally, you know, play out where they would s- switch over to English. And of course all meetings, even if I don't, I've never been in a meeting with all Francophones, of course I'm not, but I suspect they would do the whole meeting in English too, right? That's just the feeling. Interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think it's like interesting. You mentioned like they're they're deferential about it, but probably a little annoyed. <laughs> maybe, yeah. I don't I don't know. I mean, I had good relationships with all my peers. Um, uh, I have maybe better relationships with all my French speaking peers and my English speaking ones. Mm. Um, uh, maybe related to race. I don't know, but um, but yeah, I I'm sure they could be annoyed. Um, you know, because there there are definitely it, some like nationalist types, right, who are like fucking yeah. English, right? This this language thing was such a crutch. I because now, now you brought up like you mentioned that this must have been ineffective. It was so ineffective. Like the international meetings, holy crap. 
it's just like it's just like <laughs> and the, the demographics like basically within within just America it, mm-hmm. we only use English and it's a lot mm-hmm. more effective because the Chinese people were all like either like international students or um, like ABCs like me mm-hmm. so nobody had a problem with English but it's just like you know half the meetings had to be with the international group which was you know in Singapore or mainland China or, or even Europe right um. And another thing I want to mention to the listeners who have experience with tech, this is not like you hand off a project to the China team or the India team at like 5 p.m. and you right. hop off. It, it's nothing like that. I don't know why it's so collaborative, but this company is just operates in a insanely, like everyone's just always on. on and, Are you working Chinese hours? Uh, yeah, partially Chinese hours. It's a 60, around a 16-hour difference. Uh, and so it's basically we're doing like night meetings right so you, and you're you're in you're in la just for listeners who don't know right so like that's yeah. the that's what what's going on there and you know maybe this is like a way to talk a bit about this aspect of chinese tech but like you know 996 culture right like is that a thing is that have you seen that do you have to engage in that right i mean actually we can, this is probably a very big area to cover also 996 which is for most listeners it's working from 9 a.m to 9 p.m six days a week and there's a concept called da xiao zhou which means this is not every week. It's actually every other week. So they alternate between five, uh, uh, five, f- five, f- uh, five work days per week and six work days per week. Okay. And they're all nine to nine. Okay. And recently, nine nine six was getting a lot of uh, like pushback within China, and mm-hmm. like there's probably many reasons why. I don't, uh, probably wouldn't go into for this podcast, but mm-hmm. um, basically, the government is kind of trying to ban nine nine six, and. Uh, to answer and 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 basically like uh, like it's kind of like informally banned, mm-hmm. and a lot of these a lot of the major tech companies in China issued warnings against, you know, forcing employees to work so long. But from what I've heard from friends in in China, uh, it's it's still not very tightly enforced. I think like people are still working pretty hard. Yeah, and uh, the, the American team does have to follow. So what that means is, typically the the one day that they're not working on the weekend is usually um, our Friday night. So. Okay. They're, they're Saturday, our Friday, and sometimes they start working on Sunday, which means we get pinged on our Saturday. Okay, which is kind of a pain. Yeah, um, yeah. And well, after, how, how does that work though? Like, because uh, are you in working remotely from the West Coast, America? Are you like on nine hours a day, and you know on the weekends? Right, when, like, right. Typically, so, it's supposed to be a weekend. You, you're just on call, and if you get pinged, you like go back home to your computer and do something. Like, how does yeah. that work? Yeah. So more context. Uh, everyone's remote. Because uh, this was through the past year of COVID, right, right, right. and even within China, like this is something probably not in the news, but um, there were like sprouts of time where I'd see my coworkers also working remote in China because of probably mm-hmm. similar COVID outbreaks. So mm-hmm. there's just a lot of remote work, and a lot of like, and that you know the consequence of that is just getting pinged and having to go onto the computer. <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah, but more more on nine nine six. Basically, um, there's a lot of Working pressure, and uh, I want to add two more terms. So one is called Nadrin, and the other is called Tangping. And mm-hmm. Tangping, you already know. Plan A released a T-shirt about this. <laughs> <laughs> but Nadrin, the official translation is involution, and mm-hmm. uh, a way I've, I've heard it described is basically more more input, but the similar output, where people are competing on a fixed, like, like on on a fixed like uh, territory, like a fixed area. People are just competing a lot harder within that area, and not and not growing the pie. So basically, c- competition and work for the sake of work, uh, as a, a work culture thing. You mean right? So like, 
you're saying like a lot of teams are maybe vying for power and then they end up like repeating work like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing what is what is that what does that mean yeah, it, there's like different levels of Nadrian, like at an individual level within a team, within an entire industry or country. But yeah. basically, it's like you have this like well-defined project and a bunch of people just competing inside the bounds of that project to just like work really hard. And uh, But like the result is you just a lot more input and effort, but the output is still kind of the same. And, okay. and this is opposed to like zero to one, where you just create something totally new yourself outside of the bounds. Uh it's 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 a effect of the competition and like the rivalry and whatever it is. It's not in the conflict from that. It's not like you know the mythical man month from software engineering. That concept of like throwing too many people at a problem that actually doesn't make it any faster or get done any faster. I think it's different from mythical man month because yeah. that, that's a lot more about communication overhead. Yeah, um, yeah. And for <clears throat> for for this, I'm not actually sure why it's becoming like this, but uh, like to Tomping is kind of a response to Natran. Where it's like you know the 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 intense working pressure and competition um, is and then and, and, uh, like for for Nadrin, the, the 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 reason leading to it could be several it could be like pr- social pressure and competing with colleagues or this is something mm-hmm. else I've heard from my friend in China at, at ByteDance actually he told me a lot of like these tech workers uh, at like you know these uh, like a, a ByteDance or a Tencent they typically worked really hard they 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 scored well in the Chinese. Um, Gokog, uh, mm-hmm. the, the university admissions exam, did well in school, mm-hmm. and maybe they're not from like the, the wealthiest family. So there's like this risk of falling. Like if if they don't do well at work and compete, because China, you know, for our, our listeners, is four times the number of STEM PhDs as America, including mm-hmm. H1Bs. So you're just, everyone's so easily re- replaceable. Um, so this idea if you don't work very hard and put in the effort, you'll, you'll just get replaced uh, with the, the, the next person, and you'll, you'll just like maybe fall down a rung in the in society. So a lot of people have that like pressure to just work a lot. It's just it's just pressure, it's not policy, right? It's just like the the kind of atmosphere people are working in because of the sheer numbers of competing grads and so on. Right? Exactly. The, oh, oh yeah. I, I will say it's mostly pressure, but there is some policy. So for example, it's not rigid policy, but in many of the BAT companies, working on a on a sat on a weekend gives you 2x pay. Oh, okay. So okay. There, there is actual incentive. You get you get overtime. Okay. Yeah, and I think you said was it, did you say three XP on Sundays? Yeah. On, on uh, uh, this is not from all companies, but I've heard like there there is a, a subset of companies that even give you three X pay on a on a Sunday, which is is totally nuts, right? If you do both weekend days, you basically get two X the week. Um, oh yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, would, but, but that's yeah. incentivizing nine nine six. It's incentivizing nine nine seven. <laughs> like it's yeah, yeah. yeah. So so this is hilarious. Where you know recently the government's cracking down on this, and this, mm-hmm. this is hilarious because I actually heard, heard this firsthand from colleagues, where they are cracking down on it by removing the incentive, which pissed a lot of Chinese people off. They're like, uh-huh. this is our way to you know make more money, and and now yeah. like, a lot of people are still working on the weekend, but now they're not getting the two X pay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's crazy. And and but I also think about I mean, I don't know if this is a proper comparison, but like I definitely hear about people, you know, in the West who it's not this is not a good comparison about bring it up anyway, like who who work like hourly jobs and they talk about like getting, you know, double overtime or whatever because it's a holiday, you know. I don't think it's a good thing to encourage, but they do talk about it as like I I want to work, you know, I don't mind having a a weird schedule because I can earn more for myself. Um, yeah. But often these are not knowledge working jobs, right? They're like, you know, they're they're going to be more blue collar kind of work, um, you know, up in factory work, 
uh, even even work like my, my cousin's a bus driver and he gets like, you know, time and a half, right? All that stuff. Um, if you work certain certain hours. Um, so yeah. it's not, it, generally, it turns out that these incentives are generally not the best, but people try to take advantage of them, right? Just for their own, own kind of like need or self gain or whatever. So it, it becomes tricky when you remove them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is actually another topic, kind of a major question I have for myself. I'm kind of curious about your thoughts. And, and this kind of influences on like, if I want to live in Asia myself in the future, where we know like 996 Nadrian, this intense working culture. And it seems to also be true in like, you know, Japanese working culture and Korean working culture too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of curious why it's like this. Cause like if the actual reasons because of like, like material reasons with like China wants to play catch up or the population's too big or there's too many STEM graduates and not enough jobs. It, it does mean that as conditions improve, this will go away. And that will have a big influence on if I want to go to China in the future. But if it's like mm-hmm. cultural, no matter what happens, it's always going to be like this. Even when China becomes a rich country and it's not as competitive, people are still going to be working 996 because of some like cultural society reason. Then that'd be pretty crappy. <laughs> yeah, I think on our, our Tang Ping episode, we talked about how like Tang Ping rose as a response to this, like, you know, the Chinese dream, the, the idea that, you know, we all have to work hard to, to get the country in a good spot and competitive on the world stage, right? And and that did not produce dividends for a lot of workers. And so they reacted by saying, like, let's just do the minimum of work because fuck it, right? Yeah. Um, so I think seeing a response, seeing Tamping, this is why we're kind of like in, in encouragement of anti-work in Tamping is that like, yeah, there needs to be some kind of worker revolt to push back against this project, which sounded great from a nationalistic standpoint, but materially speaking for individuals, it doesn't actually do good things. Um, yeah, that's a good point. And so I don't think that I don't think it's like purely cultural. I mean, it could be still a cultural thing, and that most people do work super hard because of whatever reasons related to culture. But I think there's enough pushback to say that people aren't just a- automatons, right? Mm. Like they they can see some some set of people can see the bullshit, and that that you know, and this is true for anti work in in the West as well, right? In the U.S. and the U.K. where anti work is big, um, is that they can see the bullshit and 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 it's catchy. Right, yeah. like the, it catches on and it's growing as a movement, um, you know. So, you know, I, yeah, it, and it's it, you know, you have also have all these kind of racial factors too thrown. On. Like when I say automatons, I'm talking, I'm referring to like the the Western stereotype of Asian workers as being like you know only good at doing rote work and you know working like machines, working like robots, right, and not thinking for themselves. Um, there's that aspect of of how we kind of decipher this as well, I think. But yeah, that's true. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about this aspect of it, right? Like 996, you're kind of, you're saying, you, basically you're saying you're kind of engaged in it, like you yourself. Yeah, I've definitely engaged in it. And the US team and the team outside of the mainland China time zone, it's like in a, a different form of a different form of 996 that's like basically acknowledged within the company as even worse because for us, the working boundary is even like wider. So it's like maybe less intense like it's like basically the work is less intense per hour and mm-hmm. I'm taking like pretty long breaks in the day. I'm like in the middle of the day, I'm not doing too much, honestly, mm-hmm. but there's just like this, you're always on, like the, there's always some message that's going to come in at any time, any time of the day where even when you're not working or taking time off or just chilling, it's just this just kind of stressful. 
And right. for me, it's even worse because I get messages in like, you know, in Chinese and English. So it's just like, oh, I have to, <laughs> I have to fucking, fucking translate it. And it's just like, okay, yeah. I translate it. I just don't know. I still don't know what it's saying. And a lot of times Chinese colleagues sometimes use like advanced idioms. Like it's Cheng Yu, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is like a four character, basically a Bible verse. Like it's like a four, a four character um, message that conveys a lot of meaning. And I, I never know what they mean. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, at the same time, you know, I would think about... Um, maybe H-1B workers who are coming from China and India to work in the U.S. at a U.S. tech company. And in a meeting, yeah. you have these PMs who are like English speakers and they're using idioms to describe yeah, that stuff. Must be annoying. You got to catch on to. So, I mean, you know, it kind of goes both ways. It, it um, definitely goes both. I, this is actually, this whole experience made me a lot more empath- empathetic towards uh, like H-1B immigrants because holy sure. crap, this is very tough. Like, like, like just, I can just imagine like some you know, like American PM just citing movie movie references or something or talking about sports and that would be pretty unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, everyone's making fucking Simpson references, right? Like as long as it's, okay, look, as long as, you know, you're just kind of joking around but it's not relevant to the, the work needs to get done, fine. But at the same time, like you are also as a foreigner, right? Not, you're not fully included in the culture and the team building and like, you know, having a good, working sense with your coworkers. And I'm not saying that like you need to have that at a company, like you can just kind of approach company Tang Ping and say, I'm just here to get my work done, but yeah. it doesn't make you feel good. And that's kind of related to what you're saying about like being a non-native, uh, you know, non like, you know, first tongue Chinese speaker working at, at ByteDance could, could get you pushed out soon because you're like, oh, it's too stressful to work in a, a predominantly Mandarin or like a strongly Mandarin, you know, work environment. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you, you pretty much nailed it. And I just want to add a little bit more about 996. So uh, yeah. besides the actual working hours, I feel like engineers and product managers aren't treated like creative professionals like they are in America. It's a lot more like COGS. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's a lot more like, and this may be also a side effect of being top down. Basically, uh, there's no area owners. People are a lot more like like a pool of resources that consume uh, c- consume work and like like as it comes up. And I think mm-hmm. a, a combination of 996 and like this type of working style, which is kind of new for a lot of people who the first time in a Chinese company is the attrition rate is kind of high. I think like 10 out of the 10 of the PMs on my team quit uh, like like at their one year mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I will say there's a lot of non-Chinese people also doing pretty well at mm-hmm. TikTok. Like I know like there are some like uh, Indian and white friends who they're doing really well. They... Uh, they're like like doing pretty well in their careers. Um, they, some of them moved to China actually, mm-hmm. to and, and it's kind of like a stepping stone if you want to do business in China or build a build a resume there and like branch off later. Uh, so so basically, I've, I've noticed like it's uh, th- although there's very high churn, definitely within my organization. There's other organizations that have much lower churn, and I've noticed there are also several non Chinese people who are succeeding and doing well. But in general, it's I think the attrition is just higher than Western tech companies, mm-hmm. at, like at least in the U.S. office. We, we talked a lot about differences, uh, and we talked about like some of the negatives too. But like, are there some some positives to the work culture there that you'd say you don't see at fan companies, um, even if it's like perks and stuff? I don't know if they have a lot of those compared to like a Google, right? But yeah. um, and I know I know it's also being like you know coronavirus work from home, so you can't get free massages that easily. But yeah. you know, like what, what's what are some of the good things you've seen there that that come from the fact that it's um, you know bite dance and not not a Facebook or something? Yeah, there's actually a, 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 quite a few good things, and I, I think during this pod at least we've been focusing more on 
things that would be seen as negative. But yeah, um, I'm doing I'm doing a YouTube video with my product manager friend and talking like going. Uh, it's like a more technical going into like TikTok versus like the Fang companies a lot more uh, from the perspective of tech workers and the actual like the tactical aspects. And mm-hmm. we actually ended up listing a lot of positives for TikTok and Python and other Chinese companies. I'll, I'll go go into it right now. Basically. Um, there are like several types of people who would do pretty well at TikTok and ByteDance, uh, and like even non-Chinese people. Basically, first of all, it's it's like a lot more like a lot more people are just like heads down producing pretty good output. Mm-hmm. And we've talked before on like maybe lack of lack of process and maybe like the high friction in meetings and maybe it's not super effective there. But people seem to be very focused in producing lots of output. There's a lot mm-hmm. less like bullshit. You know, the, you know, like I said, you, you got the planet has talked a lot about bullshit jobs, but yeah. there's a lot less like bullshit communication, virtue signaling, um, just you know, writing useless documentation. That's like almost it's it's very very little in a Chinese company. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's probably a big topic as to why it's like that, but it's something I've seen. It's it's a lot more heads down doing work. That's the um, nature of of a working style where like they're producing large pools of work to do, and you consume the work. Is that like oh well, what do you know? Work gets done. Right, not not management or communication overhead. Like work gets done, not process crap. Right, um, and and also the maybe when you describe that it being a more flat hierarchy means there's fewer middle managers. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, significantly fewer middle managers. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot less bullshit communication, fewer middle managers doing little work. Uh, the the company's producing lots of solid output, so it's it's real. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's doing a good job, and and uh, like besides that, actually for a lot of people, like a lot of people who only have a background in Western tech, you might notice in Chinese tech, their way of doing things is so different. Where a lot of a lot of their like product strategy and how they think about design, it's completely different um, than the, the 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 like the U.S. mindset. And when you uh, say design, you mean like product design, UI UX design, like all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, like product design, UI UX design, like how to put everything together to make decisions on the product. It's a very different type of thinking. Probably won't, I'm not sure if we want to go too much into that, but. Yeah, there's a great article by Lilian Li, who's a, a Chinese VC who writes about um, like Chinese tech companies basically um, on her Substack called Chinese Characteristics. Yeah. Where she talks about um, like a, a, basically a little case study on like how did these Chinese e-commerce platforms design their like, like apparel shopping interface right like yeah. buying clothes on on online versus an amazon and interesting it was fascinating as as a product person i'm like well this is really cool like this the the, the starting point for what you think is different and you produce different outputs and it's and the outputs are successful right there's no one way of doing things right like you don't just go and copy amazon they have they've thought about things in a very creative and very different way that's been successful for them in their markets yeah i, I think like i'm a big fan of lillian lee i think she wrote this really good piece about like how, why Chinese companies bias towards building super apps, and in mm-hmm. America, like in the Western tech, it's a lot more like specialized for a particular niche or, or market. Mm-hmm. And she, I think they, she like ended up saying it's because of like geographical constraints and a bunch of reasons uh, as to why. But uh, what I was trying to say is, I think even like even like independent of the actual working conditions and someone who might do well in the Chinese condition. Um, it helps to just see both, you know, both worlds, and you could pick pick the best out of both working styles and working approaches. And uh, I think the cross pollination is good. Mm-hmm. Um, other and- other good things. One question that's probably people are thinking about because you mentioned comp is 
low for Chinese oh. workers, but it's comp high for Western workers. Yeah, yeah. So the, I think for the, the the good things, just like several more. I think comp in the U.S. office is quite competitive. It's um, it's actually like I think even more competitive than the fangs to to like compensate for like the work life balance and uh, like risk. Mm-hmm. So it's the comp is is very very good. It's also a, a stepping stone for people who want to step up in their career. Like for example, for product managers, which is historically a very tough uh, function to break into in Western tech, mm-hmm. uh, uh, TikTok and ByteDance are willing to hire non PMs into product management roles. Uh, okay, I'm not I'm not very familiar with like the process of like what what they consider to be like the right background, but it's 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 they're more willing to take a chance on employees. Um, for like leveling up in leadership, they're also more willing to take a chance on new employees to like lead ops teams or lead engineering teams. Uh, I think yeah, it's definitely a stepping stone. And if, I've also seen a lot of my Chinese international student friends or even like non-Chinese friends who have an affinity for China and want to do business there or start companies there. ByteDance is a really good stepping stone because you get to meet a lot of you know high potential people in China. And you could use them as a lever. Mm-hmm. Like they could help you in the future. They can help you understand how things work, um, understand the Chinese market, Chinese users. So that's a that's a good. So the high potential uh, people piece is interesting to me, right? Like the big thing about Google, Facebook, the Fangs is that they they talk about ten x engineers. You know, this concept of like a really good engineer is like literally ten times more effective than a run of the mill engineer. Or at least like a lower, lower, you know, lower uh, experience, lower um, skill engineer. Um, is that the style, like the type? And I met these people like at, at fan companies. I met engineers who I'm like, holy shit! Com- of, you know, compared to others I've seen, they are phenomenally productive, right? And this is maybe some of this is unique to the nature of programming work, right? And problem solving and programming. Do you think that exists? Like, is that the kind of people they hire? At least from the West, who get paid a lot and so on. Um, and sure, sure, tons in China too, because there's really great tech schools in China, right? Are those the the kind of people you you see at ByteDance, or is it kind of all over the place? Yeah, I think for the BIT companies, it, they definitely try to hire people with strong backgrounds. As for 10x engineers, I'm sure they exist in TikTok, but it's just like I think there's a lot less like like talk about like this heroic heroic engineers or ICs that mm-hmm. produce tons of work. It's a lot less emphasis on that. I think it's just like. Um, I don't. I don't really hear of like you know famous names of engineers that have done great things. Uh, I just don't. Th- I think I'm sure they exist, but it's just like not as talked about. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but but definitely people are 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 strong. I think the coworkers I've worked with are very good engineers. Uh, I definitely say equal to a lot of the ones in in fan companies. Right. Um, right. Despite the pay being so different, and this is actually another topic, kind of kind of specific to TikTok. But basically, um, because this company is so collaborative and the Chinese people in mainland China work so closely with Singaporeans and Americans that word got out of the salary difference. And this mm-hmm. caused some problems because, you know, these teams work so tightly together. It's like one team. Mm-hmm. But knowing that someone gets paid, you know, many times more than you mm-hmm. for producing, you know, the similar amount of work or even arguably less, like people aren't too happy about that. So this caused a lot of drama between, you know, Chinese people in China and like the international Chinese students, Americans, ABCs like me. So did anything come? Did drama. anything come from that? Yeah, I mean, it's just like drama. Like I've had a case where this guy wanted to move back to China for a few months to live in. I think his family was there. Mm-hmm. He got severe pushback because 
um, the Chinese coworkers are like, okay, now you're, you're already making so much more than this. Now you want to live in China and right, you know, right. have the low cost of living. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So, so no, no changes to compensation or benefits at all came from that whole, it's just like, it just made things tense at the company. And now people kind of understand there's a shadow of like, if you work in China, you get paid like 60K US, you work in the US, you get paid 200K US. Like this is kind of a known thing and people deal with it. Yeah, and you could explain to them the the reason why it's because of labor supply and demand. It's not because of your ability, but no one. I mean, it doesn't answer. It doesn't help because they still feel bad, and it's yeah. understandable. I mean, they're working arguably harder. Like, why should they get paid so much less? And in other in other environments, is different because if you're handing off a project to like China or India team every mm-hmm. single day at five p.m., there's just distance, mm-hmm. and it's not, it doesn't matter as much. But here, it's just like everyone knows each other pretty well, and there's mm-hmm. this camaraderie. But the pay difference is just huge. So mm-hmm. it's kind of crappy uh, in, in that sense. But I, 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 but going back to good reasons for Chinese company, I think um, another good reason is uh, I think for people who are mid, mid-level or, or se- a lot more senior and late stage in their career, mm-hmm. uh, Chinese companies in general really, really value seniority and experience. Mm-hmm. Like you're basically, because it's more top-down, you're going to have a lot more control. Uh, and basically, if you if you like like having having a wide scope, a lot of impact, more control over what you're doing, I think a Chinese company would be be good, even for like a completely non Chinese non Chinese speaking person. And I, I've seen these types of people make the move. It's a lot worse if you're like a new graduate. I think for new gra- graduates, the Fang companies are much better because there's a lot more mature processes. There's uh, promotions a lot more standardized. Uh, there's a lot, you know, uh, uh, the tooling is better. Uh, mm-hmm. so, so basically it's, it's kind of a trade-off and in, in terms of just pure career decision-making, I think early career Western companies in general might be better, but later career, especially as Chinese companies get more competitive, uh, w- which they are, I think more non-Chinese people may have to make that choice to eventually try to go work working at a Chinese company. Yeah. I mean, that, that's kind of a... It's it's interesting because that's kind of far off in the sense not not in the sense that like there's not more and more of them, but in the sense that like will we get to a point where, you know, all the American tech companies die off or are doing poorly, and then you have to you have the only the option of choosing a Chinese one or bust, right? Um, it's hard to imagine. I, I can see it happening, but it's, it feels like it's you know a decade plus away, two decades away kind of thing. I think this is already happening at for some individual cases. I know this guy. He's not he's not even Asian, right? And he was, mm-hmm. uh, he had a pretty good tech background, but he wanted to break into product management, and and he was a lot more on like the marketing and sales side. Mm-hmm. So so this Chinese company was willing to hire him as a PM, and he joined purely because of this, like knowing knowing the work life balance, knowing that it's it's a Chinese company, mm-hmm. knowing everything else, he still joined because of this reason. Yeah, um, just the just the more openness to this kind of lateral change uh, in career path. Yep. Yeah, as an option. I mean, th- those are strategies that these companies can employ to attract Western talent, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, to be open to that. And I, I think maybe listeners who, again, may not be so familiar with all this might be surprised to hear that they're so open, right? Because I think there might be a stereotype that, you know, it, it works a certain way, it's a different culture, it's very closed. But you're saying there's actually a, a number of avenues in where you could, like, change your job title or get a get a small promotion or whatever just by shifting over to work for uh, by dance. Not sure yeah. if that's an intentional part of their hiring strategy, but it would work, I think. Yeah, exactly. There's just so many differences. And for a lot of these differences, I'm, I've been thinking about it, but not even sure why. Like, there's, it could be many reasons to why things are so different. But mm-hmm. yeah. 
I want to uh, jump back to um, the topic of like race and, and work at a at, at ByteDance um, because I want to cover a couple more things before we we wrap up. Yeah. Um, this so we talked about you know second gen Asian American um, mobility, which is interesting. We can get into that a bit more. I'm actually kind of curious about like other groups that would be represented highly represented in American tech companies and how they function. Um, you know, in, in a Chinese company like ByteDance. Um, and we talked about the language barrier and stuff, but like um, this, this this particular phenomenon that I'm, I'm everyone kind of knows about, um, you know, who have awareness about race and, and Asia and like work in Asia. And it's this phenomenon of like putting a random white employee yeah. um, into a meeting or into, you know, an executive position or into some kind of like, you know, position of like privilege at, at work for that clout that comes with having a, a white face, right? Amongst like, you know, Asian customers or Asian partners or whatever, you know, is there a sense of that at TikTok or does that not exist? Um, I feel it's much, much less at TikTok. Okay. Um, and that phenomenon on like putting like some random white employee to maybe build like legitimacy or something in mm-hmm. an organization. It's de- definitely, I've heard about this from many friends in other Chinese organizations at TikTok. It's much much rarer. Uh, I'm not sure why. Maybe it's maybe the company is just way more practical and like accountable for actual like business goals. So it's it can't play these like it, like uh, like image games as much. But mm-hmm. I definitely don't see that. Well, um, you say practical. I mean, you could argue that at a practical level, if you know that having like a, a white marketing person at a meeting with you when you're trying to sell to like a large, I don't know, Japanese like uh, uh, you know conglomerate that you want to do business with right that if that's you know it's practical in the sense that it's work for other companies who want to sell it to maybe japanese companies in, the, in this example why not do it yeah that's a good point maybe in like the other functions like sales i'm not as familiar as to how they decide to hire mm-hmm. but I, I will say with engineering product management and even like the other functions that i work pretty closely with the the um I don't really see that. And I think the demographics of people we hire are kind of like a typical fan company, but just skews more Chinese. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe like, like 60-70% Chinese and 30% like spread within like white, Indian, um, and the other usually represented races in a tech company. In tech, yeah. 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 How, how, what have you noticed about how um, like white employees, how they've been treated at, uh, at ByteDance and how they function? Yeah, I mean, in, interestingly, it's very different from a you know like a like a, like, a, like an Anglo American led tech company. I think like it's it's this is quite known, but within most American companies, even the tech companies, uh, within leadership levels, it's usually like a lot more white male, white mm-hmm. male. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of like research done on this, but it, this is like basically proven. Um, and in terms of promotion to leadership, Asian men and Asian women have the lowest. Uh, like st- statistically, from like uh, uh, the, the 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 entry level versus leadership level, Asian men and Asian women are the least represented. Um, if you like, as in a, leadership, yes, in, in leadership as a proportion of mm-hmm. uh, like entry level. In Chinese companies, it's kind of flipped, where I feel like most of the the most senior leadership ranks are like usually Chinese, and at the entry level, it's a lot more like international, like white. For example, like a white or Indian or um, like Chinese people who can't assimilate, and I feel like the way, the way like I, I've noticed actual differences in how people behave. I feel like 
my colleagues who are like, especially like the non-Asian, non-Chinese ones are a lot more like um, introverted and not willing to speak up in meetings, which is, okay. which is fascinating because that's like the stereotype that Asian people have mm-hmm. in America. But I've noticed mm-hmm. like, in, if the, especially the meetings, like 80, 90% like, like Asian, I, I'm not even going to say Chinese. I'm just like, if it's like 80, 90% Asian faces and you have like one or two white faces, I think they're, they're not as willing to like speak up or crack jokes or be charismatic. And we're talking about a, a meeting that's in English, right? Like yes, even in English, can, even right, in English. Yeah. Right. And this is, it was kind of shocking for me to see this because, because I've noticed this in, in, within over several meetings and I just thought, wow, this is like totally flipped. <laughs> right. What you see in a, what you'd see in a, like a U.S. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's just the aspect of being the, the minority in the room um, is, is the big factor. Yeah. Right. Do you feel like um, your the you know white employees, your white coworkers at at ByteDance get treated treated differently by other people? Um, it's hard to say. I think like if the visible non Chinese people definitely get different treatment because like there's acknowledgement that they definitely can't speak Chinese. I I don't think there's like significant difference in treatment. I think maybe like in, for some meetings if if it's like very urgent and it has to be in. Chinese, they may not be included. Um, or oh, really? like, I mean, that's 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 huge, right? Because that means that if you're if you're um, a white person, even if you speak Mandarin, they may just you know assume what? you don't. Yeah, I, I take that back. I, I think like it, it's it's kind of it, it, there is some substantial difference. Like for example, if it's a cross-functional effort that has a lot of Chinese dependencies, you have to work with a lot of Chinese people who can't speak English that well. Mm-hmm. Or if it's an urgent meeting that it just be so much easier if everyone spoke Mandarin, mm-hmm. you won't be included. And okay. that's like the the biggest difference. However, yeah. I, I've I've, been, I've sat on performance review. I don't think they are like this person's not Chinese. We're going to give them a bad rating, but because of culture and language and how that impacts performance, at a practical level, it, it matters. Yeah, I mean that's the same deal. I mean, no one in Western companies say, "Oh, we're going to give this guy a bad review because he's black or Asian or whatever," right? Yeah. But they they may it may happen unconsciously. I you know I'm not sure what the the research says, but that's what people may assume. Um, if there's poor treatment of minorities, um, you're saying in the same way that could apply to, you know, white employees, but it's not overt. And and I, I call it white employees specifically because I'm like, usually they're the ones that get the advantage, right? This is why I started the whole thing with like, do you put white people in like sales meetings to get clout, right? Um, yeah, there is no white worship at all. Like, uh, this is something that was very, okay. like, stood out. And in fact, I'm probably shocked at how I personally responded to this because like, you know, uh, within the U S tech company, you know, with all the influence from, from like, like, uh, the subreddits and Twitter and everything. Sure. I was a lot more like, Hey, you know, I think it's good that Asian people can help each other and, you know, ascend in an organization. But after seeing like being in a total, a complete, uh, Chinese organization, I felt like, uh, like for, for myself, I was, I was, ha- I was having a hard time assimilating. So on the you know on on another side of that kind of topic, like how do South Asian employees get treated at ByteDance? Like Indian employees, there's a lot of folks who you know are Indian and work in tech, right? How do they get treated? Mm. Yeah, I think I think that the treatment is similar to white people because I think a side effect of no white worship means it's a lot more just like like practical. If this person can can they speak Chinese? Are they able to fit in with a mostly Chinese working environment? Mm-hmm. Um, and do they appeal to like the sensibilities of a Chinese leadership style? Mm-hmm. And there are good, I've noticed people who don't speak Chinese, but fit, check all the other boxes who do well. Yeah. 
Um, and I, it's a lot less like pure racial based. I, I don't think anyone's looking at because, for example, like the, the description for non Chinese is just Waigoran. Usually, there's not even like discerning if someone's white or like an Indian. Right. It's just like, oh, this person's non Chinese. And Waigoran is sometimes even applied to um, ABCs. But, <laughs> but, but for the, for the yeah. ABCs who like, you know, can assimilate or can speak Chinese or look the part, it's not applied to them, so, which, which goes back to the social mobility. Uh, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I mean, I, I think that, yeah, I, I think you described this by saying there's no white worship that kind of gets at the heart of what I was trying to get at, you know, um, yeah. versus what you might have seen in, in, in other, other situations um, related to race here. Um, one more group I kind of wanted to, to touch on too, right? How are, how, this is a tech company, right? How are women treated? Mm. This is a really interesting point because uh, what I saw wasn't really what I expected. Okay. I've heard like, oh, in, in China, women have a lower place in society and they don't have decision-making power in these bigger organizations. But I feel like after I joined, at least the product management team was really, really like 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 female, like a high representation of, of, of women, like basically 80% mm-hmm. plus mm-hmm. of all the PMs I've worked with are all women. Mm-hmm. And usually like, Chinese international students are sometimes in mainland China. So I feel like... Wait, when you say Chinese international students, you mean like they were from mainland China, they came to the U.S., became educated in the U.S., and then they went back to China, and then now they're like a PM at TikTok? Uh, both. The, the ones who've studied in America are still in America, or the, they've studied in oh, okay. the West and came back to China. Got it. Uh, okay. what, what I'm trying to say is like they're uh, a huge representation of women in product management if anything mm-hmm. is split by function so i see women in the highest levels of leadership in, P- in product management within mm-hmm. engineering it's much rarer it's a lot fewer women so so it's, it's less split by like it's less about glass ceiling and more about split by function um mm-hmm. and i wouldn't and and i don't and and, and uh, being split by function isn't i wouldn't say it's like bad or good i think like pm and engineering are basically equals for like importance uh, within the company, I'd feel. Mm-hmm. So I think, but I, I don't feel that's too far off at other uh, tech companies that claim to be progressive. Like there's more women in in product than in tech. I don't know. Sorry, than in engineering. I don't know if um, you know if like there's a bigger difference, like a bigger delta between the the ratios in a TikTok versus like a Facebook, right? Because um, like you know, typically speaking, in tech companies in in the West women are more represented in less in software engineering, right. But more in product management, you know, more in like the non tech, like operational roles, like marketing sales, whatever. Um, but the other tech role is designers, right. There's a lot of UX designers who are, who are female as well. I don't know if it's like half and half or more women than men, but they're, they're well represented. Um, you know, so that, that doesn't sound that far off, right. What you're describing at, at ByteDance, um, it yeah. enters a representation. Like yeah, it doesn't sound that different from the West. Yeah, I'm not too familiar with the stats on like re- uh, gender rep- representation split by function, but from my working experience, I haven't maybe I don't know. This is maybe just me. I haven't really noticed it too much. Okay. Um, and but I think like how women are treated in general. I have heard stories of some issues with like gender ethics. Like I've heard. One of my female product manager friends was like sort of harassed before, mm-hmm. and she said like it was kind of tough to get uh, HR to respond. And mm-hmm. she said this is probably wouldn't have happened at like a one of the fan companies. 
So mm -hmm. that happened. Uh, but I do see, I do also notice like a good amount of women in the highest levels of leadership uh, in, in, in certain functions. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things that you, it's hard to like know unless there's a scandal, right? Like yeah. what what the situation is with the, in the company. And if you're in the company, like sometimes you get a sense of it. Like you get a sense that certain people who are men like talk to women differently and, and whatnot, right? If you're attuned to that, maybe, um, you know, but you're saying you don't really, you don't really notice anything particularly off just because it's a Chinese company. Yeah, I haven't noticed any like very overt discrimination. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, that's kind of that's kind of good to know. These are like trying to trying to be on equal progressive footing with American tech companies, for whatever that's worth, right? Because you know, again, you don't you don't really know, and then until there's some big scandal. Yeah, um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm not like privy to the conversations where there is discrimination, but for at yeah. least for everything I'm involved in, I don't see it. I don't even with the conversations with if if it's like all guys, I don't hear hear anyone saying anything like that. Like, oh, let's not include this person because they're a woman. Right. I haven't right. heard that. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, well, why don't we, I mean, let's, let's talk a bit more broadly. I think we covered a lot here. Like, why don't we talk about this idea of, you know, second gen outside of, outside of like specifically TikTok and ByteDance, maybe within Chinese tech, but maybe large, larger, you know, larger, uh, more in the aspect of just like Chinese, you know, companies like Chinese corporations, um, you know, with a lot of knowledge workers and whatnot that people may relate to growing in, in influence and power you know, th this idea of the role of second gen Asian Americans um, and their influence in Asian companies, not again, not just in China, you know, is that rising? Because you talked a bit about that you know, having upward mobility is like a starting point. Right, right. I, this is, a, I really want to talk about this. So uh, especially for those listeners who are more idealistic, like what is your role, the role of second generation Asians? Or if you came during high school or college, I guess uh, more of a 1.5 gen, uh, mm -hmm. How do you, what's your role in the rise of Asia? And I've thought about mm -hmm. a lot about this with friends and colleagues and peers. And it's like, I, I think in, in a broad way to look at things, there's two ways to contribute where being a second generation Asian uh, adds, you can add unique value that a, a, like an Asian person in Asia won't be able to. The first bucket is helping Asian multinational companies internationalize. And there's a bunch of examples of this. Like there's this guy named Hyun Park one of the co-founders of Drama Fever. Mm -hmm. And he st spent a lot of time in so South America, understood that market, basically was able to help Korean media expand out, like the idea of localization uh, or a familiar surprise, basically incorporate, incorporating enough of the local cultures uh, in, into your content, but also having mm -hmm. a global appeal. So like, like the, if the content's like Korean enough, but also incorporates the enough like um, characteristics of the market that the media is trying to get into, you end up with like a really interesting, like like a compelling TV series or a, a movie. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, this is Korean. It's so new and novel, but it's not that unfamiliar to me. Mm -hmm. uh, it incorporates many elements I'm familiar with as like an American. For example, the the telenovela format, which is it's a big part of K dramas. K dramas are shorter and a lot more accessible to Western viewers than like these long meandering Chinese dramas. Uh -huh. A lot of that was pioneered by we call them like uh, in Chinese haikui, which is like a a, 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 like a, a Korean person or a Chinese person, like these, a haikui is used in the context of Chinese, but you travel outside of your country, learn, adapt, and come back. 
and then you help your uh, uh, like your, your your home country's like internet multinational company expand. Is it that a uh, uh, overseas turtles or whatever term? Yeah, um, it, about going out to get educated in, in a Western institution and then bringing all that back. Is that what that refers to? Yeah, it's uh, it's literally like a turtle, a sea turtle that swims around. Okay, okay, cool. I've, <laughs> I've seen that term before. Yeah, and that's a growing thing, right? Like one thing I've said it before is that I think between like so like the the 2000s and like 2012 or from 2012 to recent I forgot what the time frame was like the number of Chinese international students who like remain in America versus come back to China has like flipped it used to be like 80% of them would stay in America afterwards right because like you know at that time why not and then now it's like 80% of them come back to China and yeah. and that trend is still moving it's going to get you know closer and closer to everyone just goes there to extract you know that that degree from some American uh, university and then come back and they do big things in China because right. you can because you can do big things in China. Right, right. And I also want to say that the Haigui, which is these like international students who go back, and ABCs, which is like Asian Americans, right. have a similar role, which is to you have unique knowledge of the West, and this knowledge could be used to help an Asian multinational expand and internationalize. And I gave an example for Drama Fever, the Korean drama media company that did this to great effect. Like the, the uh, Hyun Park understood telenovela globalization from his experience in South America. And he had a huge contribution to K-dramas, international appeal. Um, so, and this is like one example, but there's many examples of this in many industries. And this is a great way you could add value to, to the rise of Asia. It's, um, uh, it, it's, you know, like people always talk about this whole stupid Asian American, like between two worlds thing as like a handicap. But here is being flipped as a strength and an advantage, right? Yeah, I think it's a big lever. It could be a handicap, if, like in some areas, but it's also a massive like lever. Mm -hmm. Like you could bridge information asymmetry. It's like a, it's really yeah. We're describing it as a as a lever for an advantage in like the the you know, career building or whatever, right? Um, yeah. But like I think it's. I mean, I talk about this stuff all the time about like how we should be thinking about being between two worlds as like an advantage in all sorts of aspects of life, right? Like yeah. I think it just makes you a more interesting person with more to offer than to say like a white guy. So, you know, here you're saying that that applies too and you're seeing the trend of it um, with how, you know, people are coming back or moving to um, Asia, you know, right now in small numbers or maybe larger numbers later uh, and, and doing, you know, being successful, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and there's there's even more examples. Like, for example, the guy named Alex Zhu, he he founded Musically, which became TikTok, mm -hmm. uh, while while in in, in California, mm -hmm. and um, I think that was an, 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 fits within the theme of what I just talked about, which is helping Asian multinationals internationalize. Which is ByteDance acquired Musically, and this was mm -hmm. like the birth of TikTok. Mm -hmm. um, and another another like the, so I mentioned there was two buckets. Number one was helping Asian multinational companies internationalize. The second one is to like bringing specialized knowledge and expertise from the outside world into Asia. Uh, so there's like examples of this, right? Like um, Chan Chan is the famous one. Like he, he like founded, founded China's like uh, rocket and space program. Mm -hmm. um, I think alien goo. Wait, was he the uh, JPO guy who like, I don't know. I, I think we talked about this in the pod recently. Maybe he's not the same guy, but like was well, he the JPL guy who like didn't get credits for what he did in, in at JPL, and he came to China and did like built the whole thing? Yeah, I, I believe it's the same person. Okay, cool. Yeah, but this is like when we talk about Hagui, uh, this is like the the biggest one, like the biggest name. 
Mm-hmm. And usually the common, like, like the a common example people cite as a, the, the most successful haigui. And in fact, among Chinese circles, what the, the chantress and his name is actually used as an adjective. It's like, wow, what you did was so chantress <laughs> That's kind of crazy. <laughs> it's like, you've done some great thing. You, you've like, you, you have, you came out to America, like studied, blah, blah, blah. You've developed yourself, went back to China, did a great mm-hmm. thing. People will, will call you that. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, you're so like chantress or what you did was Chantresen. Legendary. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think um, he, he's, he would be one example of the second bucket, which is bringing specialized knowledge and expertise into Asia from the outside world. I think Alien Goo is really interesting. It's like an example very hot recently that the, um, the I guess, Asia, a Chinese-American girl from San Francisco who mm-hmm. played for China in the Olympics, winning gold medals. I think it kind of fits in this bucket too. She's definitely adding value to China, um, mm-hmm. and she's contributing big time. And it's like within a, you know, within sports. I think Joseph Tsai, Alibaba is also another example. He was a really key player who spent a lot of time in the West, uh, originally from Taiwan, and contributed a lot to Alibaba, like for raising funding, hiring key players. Um, I think Jack Ma wouldn't have been able to to pull this off without Joseph. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think about Andrew Ng, um, right, right. Who's a uh, fairly British-born American computer scientist who you know did a lot of the AI work at, at Google Brain and so on. Um, and then he he moved to China to work as the chief scientist for Baidu. Um, and I think he left at some point, but like definitely there was that aspect of him taking that like kind of Stanford knowledge, right, and yeah, bring it over there. Yeah, yeah. This is, oh, sorry, he's at UC Berkeley. If you're going to stab me for that, but yeah. UC Berkeley um, education and bringing it over. The, yeah, there's a long list of these types of chanters and types, like you know, Andrew and you have like Kaifu Lee also is a big one. Within, oh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, he's yeah, in a big one, huge. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I think, I mean, these are like the big, the biggest, most glamorous examples, but everyone can contribute in their own way. Like I'm sure we all have friends who've done something similar. Who've like mm-hmm. you know went back to Asia, played played their own part, but it's a contribution. And I think like if you if you really believe in all this, like everything we've talked about about helping Asia rise and like ending imperialism, I think like actually contributing uh, is is a good thing. So then, what's your recommendation to second gen Asian Americans who may be listening to this? Is are you saying like include it as an option for what you want to do in your career? Or are you saying you know? forget or you're saying like you're even more bullish you're saying forget all the american options you should do this like what haven't gone through it yourself a little bit you know and um everything we've said before about all the pros and cons but a lot of the pros what's your what is your kind of um advice um it's, it's it'd be hard for me to give like strong advice to to drop everything and go to like an asian company because this is like huge friction in doing that even as a you know, second generation Chinese American or for a Chinese graduate student mm-hmm. or for someone even in China, because a lot of Chinese employees also want to come to America and work at an American tech company to avoid like the intense competition in Adrian. Mm-hmm. And for me, my, myself, I'm, I will like, like, it's not even, I'm not certain like if I want to work at a Chinese company in the future also because mm-hmm. of personal reasons. So what I'm trying to say is, is, is a lot to balance between ideals and practicality and things will change, you know, in the next 10, 20 years. But I think for, for those who are like very idealistically minded and want to contribute to the rise of Asia, just know that there are ways like you could actually contribute in ways that uh, like domestic agents can't. Uh, 
uh, for like the second generation uh, Asian Americans who are in the West. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to give advice to say like just drop everything you're doing and and like move to Asia or work at an Asian company because that's like kind of strong and I, I'm not even sure if I could do that. But mm-hmm. um, it's it's this is a real option for the ambitious or idealistic. Yeah, it's obviously hard. It's a it's know, really hard, hard decision, <laughs> but also once you get there, it's really hard as well, right? It's what we yeah, can't like here. holy crap! At TikTok, like for the first three months after these meetings in Mandarin, I'd be sweating. I'm literally sweating every <laughs> single meeting because I just yeah. it's just freaking like it's not even when I don't talk. You have to like listen to what they're saying, and you don't know what they're saying. And I'm like on Google Translate every single meeting. It's really I, I don't think I could do that for like five years. It'd be insane. <laughs> so, so from everything you told me, it sounds like the ideal situation if you're interested in this path is to, you know, if you're a second gen Asian American, uh, Asian American, Chinese specifically, right, or 1.5 gen, and you speak perfect Mandarin, go to TikTok and pretend you speak shitty Mandarin, <laughs> but try really pretend you're trying really hard. People will love and, you, and and people will love you. Yeah, that's exactly. The, that that is the way to go. I think, okay. so. I think we've figured out the path. That is the path. We gained it. We gained it. Success, leadership, and helping Asia rise. It's uh, we'll answer everything. There you go. All right. Um, <laughs> with that said, maybe a good way to bookend it is to talk about, you know, because I, I don't know if you want to include this, you know, but like, you know, you're, you're thinking about leaving, right? You're thinking about, you know, wrapping up your time at TikTok by dance and moving on. What, what's, uh, what's, what's your thinking there and what are you going to do next? Yeah, I'm thinking about, um, you know, quitting, uh, t- taking some time off, figuring out what to do next. And to be completely honest, like the big reason why is the the practical part, which is, you know, the, the crazy competition, late hours, mm-hmm. uh, b- having to like consciously think about what to say and assimilate to this new mm-hmm. culture. E- even as a you know, second generation Chinese American who's eager to, you know, be, be more Chinese and like be more connected with my culture, learn Mandarin, mm-hmm. uh, contribute to, it, to the rise of Asia. It's just like, it's just hard. It's just like, very difficult. And yeah. doing it over like many years, it's it, it's. I, I think there's some diminishing returns. I, I'm happy to, you know, over the time I've worked at TikTok, I think it. I, I actually I actually would do it again if I had the choice, and I would, would recommend, depending on the person, that they also do it. And we've talked about the types of people who would, uh, who would where it would make sense for them to work at a Chinese company. Mm-hmm. But for me, I've decided to leave because of more practical reasons. So. Uh, um... You know, in in some sense, like so, the the year you've been there for about a year, right? Yeah. Like in that year, do you feel like you got like a lot of good stuff out of it, though? Like, in, you know, like at the beginning, you talked about the reasons why you wanted to go work for a Chinese company, at least for a bit, right? Um, contribution, you know, yeah. um, you know, learning, you know, expanding your network. You got those things out of it, right? I, I got some of what I wanted, and and others not so much. Like building a network in China, I definitely got that. I think learning Chinese is was was it the biggest like accomplishment from this? Like I, I think definitely a business proficient can talk about technical concepts and that's great, man. That's huge. for one one year, yeah, one year. Yeah, and yeah, you got kinda, paid working a job while you. Yeah, it was a, a crazy forcing function because you're sweating and in, in meeting and you have yeah. to freaking speak the language. Yeah. Um, and I got to. It's happy to you know participate in you know one of the first Chinese consumer internet success outside of China. It was exciting, but I think there's some some parts that were not so fun. Like I learned that. Through the past year, that I'm very not Chinese, I think I've <laughs> I've just learned like I'm I'm so far from like a totally Chinese Chinese person who grew up and was born there, like a domestic mm-hmm. Chinese person. I am so far from that, and I don't know if I can ever 
fully be like that. It's it's, mm. it's just so different based on like a Western upbringing. So mm-hmm. that was like a, a, a um, like a reality check that mm-hmm. holy crap, this is it's not not, a, ne- not a negative too, right? Just like a, it gives you some clarity, and maybe helps you make better decisions later on about what you want to do. Yeah, it, it was definitely a reality check, though. Yeah, it's a, I wouldn't say negative, but um, it wasn't a pleasant feeling. Kind of kind of a crisis. Yeah, because yeah, it, it's one thing to be on these like going on Twitter and the subreddits and. You know, wow, you know, supporting Asia, but being actually, you know, being surrounded by by these people for like a year and just learning, you know, there's just so many differences. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I appreciate it also what you shared about um, de- developing some empathy for the flip side, right? Like, you know, H1B workers in tech in America, the kind of stuff they go through with like assimilation and, and the struggles there to fit in and do good work and stuff right like learning about that it's a great way to learn that i suppose yeah and there's nothing quite like that would replace the actual experience like you could read about it in a blog post but actually going through what they went through was insane and it's not even as bad because for me i'm still in america working at a chinese company right for most of these h1b people they came they totally uprooted themselves um both company and like you know that's right yeah that's right yeah okay i mean you don't know what you want to do next. I mean, that's. You, I, th- I think you said you're yeah. taking a break and oh, stuff. Oh, and- oh, oh, yeah, a perfect transition. Actually, so my, my friend Derek and I are, might push more towards the journey to the East program. So, for all the Asians, uh, like what, whether you're Chinese American or Korean American or Vietnamese American, like all types of Asians, uh, like the whole Asian diaspora. If you're interested in life in Asia, please reach out. Um, we're trying to dig deeper on the topic of what it takes to, like, like like support people who want to move to Asia and like ha- have a life there at least short term. Cause right mm-hmm. now the, the, it's kind of, it's kind of tough. Cause first of all, not, not many people do this. Like not, there's not many people who actually make the move out to Asia because of many reasons, like, um, like job or feeling, feeling belonging socially. But if you're interested in that, yeah, definitely reach out. Great. And we'll, we'll put your information in the, uh, the show notes so folks can, can reach you. Um, yep. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap up. It's been a, a good almost two hour talk. Um, I'm fascinated by this. I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to talk through this. Um, looking forward to that video you're making with your buddy too. We'll, we'll try to link that from our Twitter once that's out as well, just for a deeper dive into like the kind of working tech side Though we did. I think we did a pretty good, good job, you know, digging into that too on this chat. Um, as well, anything else you want to say before we wrap it up? Yeah, I just want to say after, after listening to many plan a, two-hour podcasts after finally going through the holy crap i have a lot more appreciation for what you guys are doing because i'm exhausted and i think like in the past 40 45 minutes i was like pretty brain dead having i'm really struggling <laughs> that's why we have the outline that's why we, yeah, we gotta stick crap. to the script this is not easy yeah well i appreciate you uh, uh slogging through it with me super fascinating we definitely want to have you on again i know there's people on on the team like jess and jong who work in tech yeah uh, who would love to chat with you about you know, adjacent topics and stuff. So we'll have you back on again in the future. Um, but uh, thanks a lot, Lucas. Really appreciate it. Yeah, totally. Thanks, Philip. All right. See you later. Bye. Bye.